All right. Is it is it time to set it off? I think so. For each of us individually in our own homes, if we synchronize our watches, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and together that action is setting it off. There are two colours in my head. There are two colours in my head. There are two colours in my head? There are two colours in my head. We are Hottest 100s and Thousands, and we have taken control of your radio station. This is the podcast where we talk about the songs that have been deemed hot enough to be in the Triple J Hottest 100. My name is David James Young, and I am one of the four voices you're going to be hearing for the next hour or so. Joining me... Once again, Adam Buncher. Yo. Yo. Andrew McDonald. Happy to be here, which is my house. (laughs) (laughs) Nailed it. (laughs) Fuck off. (laughs) And Nathan Harrison. Hi. Nailed it. (laughs) Thank you. Well, I I didn't aim particularly high, so I just, it was easy to do. (laughs) Yes, uh, in in case you hadn't picked up already, Andrew is uh, recording from his house as a throwback to season one. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, man. uh, It was a pretty roundabout way of being like, huh, get it? Get it from before? But we're all trying to find humor where we can, so I appreciate the effort. Well, look, it's all I can do, literally. Literally all I can do. All right, folks, at number 45, this is Maloko with The Time Is Now. You're my last breath, you're a breath of fresh air to me. I am empty, so tell me your care. That was Maloko coming in at number 45 in the 2000 Hottest 100. That's the song The Time Is Now, and the time is now for Nathan Harrison to take the stand and talk to us about Maloko's other big hit. Was it that big a hit? I don't think I'm very familiar with it. Well, uh, it was nominated... (laughs) We might all be a far apart, but we're all still on brand. (laughs) It was nominated for Best British Single in 2001 uh, in the Brit Awards. Yeah, not by me. Not by you. (laughs) You weren't on the panel for some reason. Well, I mean, Nathan, do you think it is a better song than Robbie Williams' Rock DJ? No way. Yeah, no way. Well, in some ways, then you are still aligned (laughs) to the 2001 Brit Awards. Look, few songs are. We should make that very clear. Yeah, exactly. I think it's a fair call. That's who won that. Roisin Murphy doesn't strip off to her literal skeleton in the music video for The Time Is Now. So, you know, she doesn't really have that advantage going for her. (laughs) None of us could take it. No. None of us could handle Roisin Murphy doing that. No. That's true. (laughs) She could recite the ingredients of making tabbouleh to me and I would still be like, please, I I cannot. (laughs) (laughs) So this is obviously the follow-up to Sing It Back. It's the lead single off the third album, Things To Make And Do. It's, you know, obviously in a lot of ways very 
different. I, I really pay the idea of just going hard on making a really acoustic disco song. But you, th- you think of Sing It Back's non-remixed version. Yeah, and it checks out. Yeah. Right? Like, there's there's a thread here. But this is like, I guess this is more of a disco song than the original Sing It Back, but matches the remix version except in the production. Yeah, and, and it's not as much of a, a disco song as the remix Sing It Back. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Minimum disco is Sing It Back. Medium disco is The Time Is Now. Maximum disco is Sing It Back. (laughs) Everyone's following at home with a notepad. And there's a real warmth to this. It's beautifully produced. You can feel that bass string. It's so evocative of style and all the instruments. There's such a like real tactile warmth to how they sound. Yeah, because even if the, um, like say like the violins, right? Like that's pure disco with how they're done. And even if they're not actually real violins, even if it is a sample, it sounds organic. Yeah. It was an actual real violin, but they deliberately did it stripped back. They were saying that they didn't really have the the money. They were constrained by a budget. So they, they wanted to go full on disco strings, but instead they got what they referred to as street strings. And I think like, even though there is not the full orchestral arrangement going on here, they get so much value for money out of it just because of the way that they use the string melodies and the way that they kind of build and and have variation on that. Like, it sounds a lot bigger than it is. It's better for being like that. I think if it was huge and sounded like a disco, like, actual disco thing, it would be a worse song. I think it's better that it is more stripped back. Yeah. I kind of feel like it's not quite the sum of its parts. Like, I really like all the sounds, but the song itself is a little bit boring and I'm kind of waiting for... I don't know anything. The chorus is okay, but it just it goes on for a long time and and I don't find the joy in it that the that the sounds kind of suggest might be there. Yeah, I get you for that. I don't think it's a spectacular song, but I think it's well done. For me, it's all about Roy Sheen. She was always the selling point of Maloko, but like if this was in anyone else's hands, it wouldn't have the same drive and it wouldn't have the same intrigue and the same mysticism about it. I don't feel like many other vocalists could have that kind of alluring presence that Roisin Murphy has. And that was obviously one of the key parts of what made Maloko, you know, uh, a popular group to begin with. And that's obviously led to her pursuing her solo run as well and things like that. I I wouldn't say it's a cult of personality or anything like that, but it's definitely like... No one remembers the other guy in Wham, you know what I mean? Andrew Ridgely? No, the other guy. (laughs) You smart ass. <laughs> the other guy is George. Oh, yeah, yeah. George something. Yeah, yeah. we obviously know Andrew. Come on. <laughs> yeah. What I think this song does really well is communicate the idea of romance without descending into cliche. And I think that that's really difficult to do because I think in order to communicate romance at all, you're always skirting close to it. But I think like it just balances that really nice and it also balances a sense of minimalism despite the fact that it actually gets quite grand. I love the the idea of them bringing in the idea of the, of the street because that's there's something like really like European outdoorsy about it as well. Again, it's and it's playing into that romantic imagery, but just embodying it as opposed to kind of sending it up. Street youths love Maloko. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, they're just all about it. <laughs> Ne'er do wells hanging out on stoops with their boomboxes playing <laughs> the time is now. Uh huh. <laughs> Yeah, and like dancing sexily, I guess. Oh, there's a lot of sexy dancing. But like sexy, like you're wearing like a really nice dress, but you're dancing with a partner, like you've practiced this dance, you know what I mean? Or you're just, I don't know, from Spain and you instinctively know (laughs) how to tango (laughs) genetically. Yeah. (laughs) 
there's definitely an element of this song, which is just that gif from The Road to El Dorado, where he's just like menacingly playing the mandolin. A bit of that. Yeah, a bit of that action <laughs> going on with it as well. Yeah. It's interesting that uh, this was, I guess, the follow-up single, right? You think that like after the success of Sing It Back, you might be like, oh, I guess we have to be a disco band now like to, and do big electronic shit. But, like, obviously that isn't what the band was. Like, they obviously have disco elements to this, as we've said, right? Like, it's acoustic disco. I love that as a mission statement for a song. I love the idea of them going, like, let's do a disco song, but let's do it acoustically. That's cool. Yeah, for sure. I respect the hell out of that. But, like, like it's, it's certainly not my kind of thing. But it's a groover, and I respect the the chutzpah that I had to do the acoustic disco. I also really love the fact that even though it's a five-minute song, it really doesn't seem that long to me when I listen to it because I think they really have a way of creating variation in their ideas and it's like there isn't ever any moment that actually truly repeats there's always like a slight step up or a slight pull back or just a slight uh, tweak on on the melodies or the production that they're playing with in any given point in time I think that's really clever songwriting and really clever production same it's not really the kind of thing that I would throw on like but i'm not much of a disco head so like but at, at the same time like i recognize it's just a, it's a quality tune what did you buy those rollerblades for man it's a fun way to get around yeah true at the moment adam yeah you're more of a discord head <laughs> <laughs> a little peek behind the curtains for what i was wondering how we're recording the app yeah he's a real discord duck if you will <laughs> i'm here all week literally i'm here all week yeah <laughs> At number 44, this is Sinead O'Connor with Daddy. I'm fine. <laughs> Don't say it like that. <laughs> no, you can say it like that. <laughs> you can say it like that as a treat. I was born in Dublin town where there was not too much going down for girls whose only hope was not to find a man who could piss in the pot. So early I heard my first guitar and I knew I wanted to be a big Sinead O'Connor returning to the Triple J Hottest 100 after a few weeks away. She's back at number 44 with the song Daddy. I'm fine. It comes from the same album as No Man's Woman. And in this, we are basically getting the Broadway musical of Sinead O'Connor moment. Like, (laughs) (laughs) yes. Yeah. This is the overture. Yeah, yeah. Were we talking about that? Where, like, you know what musical you're seeing, but they still manage to try and, like... Yeah, uh, they say the name of it. Yeah, they say the name of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you're here, you're watching Cats, the musical by Andrew Lloyd Webber. Not the movie one, just on stage. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, And, like, that's the most obvious musical that you're watching because, literally, it's just Cats and everything is Cats and it's Cats. <laughs> <laughs> but why is Cats? You never find out. Spoilers, you never find out. 
Maybe in the novelization you find out. The novelization of cats? Yeah. Or like there's a there's a wiki with a lot of in-depth stuff. But it was based on a book. And it was based on the poems of T.S. Eliot. We're not talking about cats. <laughs> <laughs> Following on from that analogy of this being the, uh, the Broadway musical about Sinead O'Connor's life, based on this song, would you go to that Broadway musical? Uh, no, but there are very few songs that I would. So it, I don't think that's a reflection on the song. I think it's a reflection on musicals. musicals. <laughs> but I thought this song was fucking cool. I like it. I like it too. This is one of my favorite songs from this era, kind of just throwing it back to when she was, I guess, less concerned with, with pop and stuff like that and the singer-songwriting stuff and like genuinely was like kind of pursuing more of a rock thing. When she puts her mind to it, she can really kind of go for it. And there's obviously just very obvious lyrics here and it's very like explicitly autobiographical and it's just like, and then this happened and then this happened. But like, she's always been that kind of like no filter person and like you can't really imagine her doing it any other way. So in that regard, I feel like this really, really works. It's a super entertaining song. I just really like when the chorus kicks in, that, that like kind of fuzzy guitar in the background and there's that real kind of marching determination to the rhythm as it just keeps pushing forward. Like, I'm into that. Yeah, it's funny seeing her, like, totally eschew any idea of, like, political kind of statement in this song. It's just fucking her being like, oh, man, I, like, want to be a fucking rock star and I feel hot as shit when I've, like, got my thigh-high boots on and my head shaved and I'm just fucking kicking ass and any I could fuck any man in the crowd. Like, it's, like swaggery rock and roll, but it's still with Sinead's Irish lilt. Like, it- yeah. <laughs> But do you think it is actually issuing any kind of political kind of thing or do you think she's kind of like presenting herself as a model, being being front and centre as a, as a female voice and as a female artist, but also unrestrained by societal expectations once again? Like, I really think that that's definitely part of the agenda of the song. Obviously, like, nothing can totally issue politics. Like, the personal is political, and she kind of definitely has that in here, right? Like when she's like, I'm sorry, but I am fucking off and I'm not going to be in the opening lyric, right? Where like the most you could want as a poor woman in Dublin is to find a man who could piss in a pot or whatever. You could perform a feminist reading of this and where she talks about like feeling sexy in makeup and I could fuck any man in the crowd kind of thing. That kind of rock star thing, you could have any groupie or whatever like that. But to do it from like a female perspective kind of thing, of course there is some intrinsic kind of feminist reading that could be performed easily in a, in a reading of this song or whatever. Like to me, I think this song is just her, like when we spoke about um, No Man's Woman, about how this is following a tumultuous period in her life and her now just being like, you know what, I actually want to have write a very fun song. I want to have fun performing this fucking song. And it rocks hard and kicks ass kind of thing. And I think that's really fucking awesome. Oh, I didn't I didn't even consider that in terms of the context of what she's been through as a performer and whatever. That kind of puts it in a bit of a different light. Because what I kind of thought when I was first listening to the song is that it was kind of not being wholly truthful in, in the celebration. That it was like a cautionary tale bemoaning fame and sex and drugs and rock and roll and all those kinds of things. Like it wasn't necessarily about her, but about someone like her. Ah. And the daddy I'm fine wasn't necessarily being entirely honest with that. But I think where it lands at the end is kind of even better than that because it says like, yeah, you've heard the stories of people in embracing this lifestyle and and female performers who are outwardly promiscuous or whatever are kind of like demonized and bemoaned and whatever. But no, actually, I'm having a lot of fun. 
And I'm honest when I say like, you may, you may think I'm in trouble, but I've, I've got all of this under control and I am actually fine. That's how I take it. I, I take it with sincerity. Yeah. Totally. I also really love how she brings back the tin whistle at the end. So like she starts off by kind of like moving away from Dublin and and moving away from her Irish roots, but she kind of brings it full circle at the end and she- Psych, still Irish. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Still still love being Irish. Don't worry, dad. Even calling herself a pagan woman is very much rooted in that sense of being Irish as well. Yeah, I, I, I did love that. Yeah, it's kind of cool. I have to say like overall, I'm not super into it, but I kind of err on the side of it's just not for me. We talk about Sinead O'Connor writing very much- for herself um and and in doing so very much for other young women in the 90s like that i think is just so clearly the target audience so i think like yeah it's kind of okay that it's not like my favorite song or whatever that it's not for you yeah i was really surprised at how much fun i had with this i hadn't heard it before and i didn't know that Sinead could rock this hard and have this much like kind of kick-ass swaggery fun so like, I, yeah. I, I, I had a real lot of fun with this song. I, I listened to it quite a few times, but it was an absolute bop. Yeah, same. I, I got really into it. I liked it a lot. If you like this style of hers, um, I definitely recommend going back to like the late 80s stuff. Like uh, The Lion and the Cobra, I think is a really, really cool record. And I think you might dig it. Yeah, I think I fucking will, man. And honestly, because hearing this made me think, and I, like I said before, I, I, did, I did enjoy No Mentalman as well. I was like, maybe I have to fucking hear this record. Yeah. I mean, what else are we going to do? <laughs> yeah, I have to go to my local record store and mingle with some patrons and pick it up. <laughs> Pass it round to everyone. What do you think of this? Yeah. How does it taste to you? <laughs> <laughs> For fuck's sake. Fight the real enemy. That's why they call it good taste in music. Dad. D. Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> Number 43, this is Fatboy Slim with Sunset, open bracket, Bird of Prey, close bracket. Bird of Prey, flying high, flying high, Bird of Prey, Bird of Prey. In the summer sky, flying high, bird of prey, bird of prey, flying high, flying high, bird of prey. Fatboy Slim making his return to the Hottest 100, uh, coming in in the 43rd position uh, in the 2000 countdown. That is Sunset, Bird of Prey. You can find it on the album Halfway Between the Gutter and the stars. Adam. Yo. You saw Fatboy Slim with me and Nathan earlier this year. And it was dope. It was a good time. It was really super fun. And I think like it allowed me to to kind of get Fatboy Slim as an artist and like view his personality a little bit more. I think now that he's like clean and sober and is just like has been able to refocus on just doing what he loves again. 
from Eat Sleep Ray for Pete onwards, like he's had like a real renaissance and a real comeback period that's been tied in with both nostalgia for people obviously remembering his classics, but also him really getting back into form as a DJ as well and people really, really getting around him. So yeah, that's been super awesome to see for me as a fan anyway. Despite not really even recording much new material. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, Eat, Sleep, Brave, Rafid has been one of the biggest dance songs of the last decade. So it's yeah, it's wild to see that he still has that kind of power and that kind of resonance. Yeah. And God, you forget how many hits the guys actually had. Like, mm. yeah. <laughs> you think you've named them all. Like, you sit there and you try and name every hit that Fatboy Slim has ever had. And I guarantee you're going to come up short because he just has so many. He's been very active recently as well, doing some DJ sets from his own home. Oh, I've tight. seen that pop up. I haven't listened to any yet, but I, I have a few saved uh, in YouTube to throw on sometime when the mood get grips me. Hell yeah. Looking at the context of what uh, Fatboy Slim songs we've already kind of talked about, and then Bird of Prey, this track kind of is a bit of a different gear. Or I think, like, more correctly, it's like a different kind of gear. It's still good gear. He's, <laughs> he's definitely playing with this idea of, of it being a psychedelic song. And you need no clearer signifier than that than the fact that you're sampling Jim Morrison and the fact that it ends on the phrase flying high. <laughs> this is, I think, so essential to Fatboy Slim's personality where he will take this kind of aesthetic and he'll just, like, put a wink on it. And then he'll embody it kind of playfully. That's entirely what is going on here. He's taking this this world uh, and idea of psychedelica, applying the big beats to it, and then just kind of allowing us to have a bit of fun there. It's got this kind of vague menace and danger, but also like this sense of airiness and spaciousness. I think both of those things are essential to that kind of like psychedelic aesthetic. But it still has all the things that you kind of want in a Fatboy Slim song. Like It's got dope drops. It's got huge beats. Anytime that bass melody comes in, it's so incredible. It's another hit for Fatboy Slim. It's pretty much the the, the summary line for the track. <laughs> yeah, right. As a kid, I um like I liked other Fatboy Slim songs, but I didn't like it as a kid because to me it, it has this fucking sense of melancholy to it that was so disconcerting to me. There's a weird sadness to this song that I think is wonderful. Like I absolutely think it fucking rules now. Awesome big beats, huge house rhythms, the drops of robbing kind of thing but like this kind of melancholic attitude that it kind of carries to me the, i don't know maybe it's just the the sadness of, of jimbo's voice with like the bird of prey i think this is a terrific song but it, it, i think you're right when you said a, a different kind of gear adam because it's so like there's a fucking eerie melancholic vibe that this song has that still now strikes me a little bit weird that like i don't when i have fatboy slim on i, I don't always this, have this track on because i'm not always in the right headspace for it i don't know something about it maybe it's just childhood nostalgia for the sadness i guess it's way more serious yeah. than anything else that he's kind of done it's not like straight out fun the playfulness is in the fact that he's embodying this aesthetic i think um, yeah and you have to kind of dig and scratch beneath the surface to kind of see that. If it was any other artist, I would assume that he's playing it a lot more straight than he is. Mm. But yeah, like it does present on the surface level as a kind of like serious, almost menacing dance song. I do think it's fascinating and a terrific track. And that, that beat is obviously awesome. Like the throbbing hugeness of it all is classic big beat house. But yeah. Yeah, I don't love it. No. I've never really been into this song. I don't know how much of that is just I don't really care for the sample. Because you hate the doors. Um, hate them so much. Yeah. Because I just hate the doors <laughs> so much. I'm like, I'm 
yeah, frothing at the mouth, even just thinking about how much I hate them. And like, <laughs> the beat is fine, but I'm just like, I guess I'm not really interested in that kind of psychedelic stuff going on. And because of that, I'm like, I'm really missing the sort of playfulness. And because the sample just feels so, I don't know, serious, I guess, in, in that like, it's, oh, it's just, it's a Jim Morrison poem about a bird. Like, I just like, I just don't care. <laughs> Surely the first time you heard this, you didn't know it was a fucking Jimbo sample, though. Um, maybe not. I don't know, dude. He, it's it's Jim Morrison. Of course, you know what he sounds like. I didn't know it was Jim Morrison until uh, I did research for the song for this podcast. Really? Okay. I knew it was Jim Morrison like years ago, but I certainly didn't know when I first was listening to the song or even when I liked the song. <laughs> I'm such a boomer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I mean, I think I came across this as an adult rather than as a kid. Yeah. Because I certainly don't think this song had the same kind of crossover pop success. As like Brimful of Asher. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I don't know. If, if not straight away, then probably fairly soon, I, I knew that it was Jim. But I just like, yeah, I don't know. It just, it doesn't grab me. I appreciate that there's nice things happening with the beat, but I think the sample is just, it kind of like kills the song for me a bit. And I can't enjoy the sort of other good qualities in the song enough. Like I don't hate it. I'm not going to like whatever, but it's just like, it just doesn't it's do not a door song. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like this isn't the strongest song from this era. Obviously that goes to weapon of choice. That goes without saying, but I still think there's merit to this. It's a little longer than your average Fatboy Slim single. And that gives it time to kind of like marinate and build and progress. You know, there's little peaks and valleys and stuff like that. And kind of feels a little cinematic in a way as well, which I find really, really intriguing. Yeah. The production work is great one thing i did want to bring up just in the way the flying high line is delivered do you guys know the story about when the doors went on ed sullivan no let me guess jimbo was drunk (laughs) let me guess the cops dragged him away (laughs) and i support that uh no not not quite So, uh, the year was 1967, and The Doors were doing very well for themselves with a very, very popular song called Light My Fire, and they were going to perform it on The Ed Sullivan Show, but before they went on, they were pretty explicitly told, you can't say the word higher, because... It alludes to something... A little bit naughty. Yeah, a little bit naughty. So what Mr. Mojo Ryzen did went uh, on there and very emphatically went higher and just really drove home every time that he said the word higher and higher. That kind of spawned a whole thing where he would bring that into how he would sing that particular phrase pretty much from there on out. Anyway, they got banned from the Ed Sullivan show. So that's a thing. It's so funny to me that like, honestly, I think some Doors songs are pretty fucking cool. Like I have a soft spot for the Doors, but it's so much more fun to hate the Doors. (laughs) Oh yeah, for sure. Like I have nothing but respect for Ray Manzarek. Oh yeah. He was just a- Dude, Manzarek's a killer keyboardist, man. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Like, especially because the Doors for most of their career didn't have a bass player. So not only was he laying down those like high end organ parts, but like he was down the low end as well, adding like in the both hands. Yeah. (laughs) Ladies. (laughs) Just the way he played was really, really creative. Easily the centerpiece of the Doors for me was was Ray. Absolutely. 
At number 42, this is Radiohead with everything in its right place. Radiohead coming in at number 42 in the 2000 Hottest 100. That is everything in its right place. Andrew. David. Now, when it comes to this song, do you feel like everything is in its right place? To a faultless T, man. Uh, Kid A is my favourite Radiohead record by an easy margin. Same. And this is the opening track to the record and is probably my second favourite song from the record. This was the first song that Tom and the band wrote for the Kid A sessions. After touring extensively for OK Computer, uh, the band had a real sense of burnout after becoming like the biggest band in the world. Um, And Tom in particular felt that. He had a mental breakdown and checked himself into a psychiatric clinic, I believe. He wrote this on a grand piano on its own. It brought it to the band and the band then worked it into a traditional song. And then they transcribed that into Synthesizer. Yeah, right. I'd be very interested to hear the band version of this song. But um, the lyrics, I think, are really just this kind of beautiful abstract full of poetry that um, Tom has denied numerous times that there's any sort of gibberish kind of thing. He said in particular there was a moment after he played the NEC Arena in Birmingham and he remarked saying, I came off the end of that show, sat in the dressing room and I couldn't speak. People were saying, are you all right? I knew that people were speaking to me, but I couldn't really hear them. I just had enough and I was so bored with saying I'd had enough and I was just beyond that. And I think that kind of abstract kind of sadness comes through in the song. Like that, that I, I think Radiohead in their lyrics, I guess Tom as a songwriter, has done this many times that he, he'll do a ironic kind of sense of like saying like, yeah, everything's in its right place. Yep, I'm absolutely abjectly miserable. Everything is in its right place. This is how it's meant to be kind of thing. He does that a lot kind of stuff. Very big no surprises vibe as well. Exactly. Yeah, right. Numerous times uh, in the podcast, I've spoken about my love of like thesis statement songs, songs that open records and give you the message of what this record is going to be like. And I think this is one of the greatest examples of that, particularly off the back of okay, Computer, when they were playing with some non-traditional rock ideas, but for most intents and purposes, okay, Computer is an alternative rock album. And then they come back and people are dying to hear a new Radiohead. And then this is what they get, these soft synth sounds and these warm synth patches and no guitar, no drums, no bass, just abstract synthesizer music. And Tom's, like, the amount of actual different lyrics in this song is quite minimal. It's just this abstract poetry piece kind of thing. Um, I think that's such a bold, terrific fucking move. The synth that moves through this song is all beautiful. Tom's vocals are always brilliant when they start glitching his own vocals towards the end of it as well, this further thesis statement that this is an album that is different to what you fucking expect. Mm. Yeah, it fucking rules. And I think this, to me, is the moment that Radiohead 
became deserving of their hype. This just is such a fucking stellar, beautiful goddamn song. And the fact that it came from a band that started off writing Creep is so fucking fascinating, right? They go from like dorky kind of Brit poppy brats to like Tom said numerous times he was extensively influenced by the Warp uh, electronic music label, in particular like Aphex Twin and stuff and Orteca. And that's definitely here. But just this abstract lushness and this sad, ironic poetry that channels the song, I do not have enough love for this track, man. It's so fucking amazing to me. I can't believe how good it is. Even now, like when this prepping for this app, I listen to that song and then finish prepping for the other ones and then immediately just listen to Kid A because mm. it's just fucking perfect. I think one of the things that has always drawn me to this song is the time signature. Now, Radiohead have obviously been a, a big proponent of uh, the odd time signature. Like bits of Paranoid Android are in 5-4 and in 7-4 and stuff like that. There are like entire music theories about what the time signature of Pyramid Song is. They've always kind of experimented with that sort of stuff. Yeah. In this, they use a very unique time measurement, which is 10-8. So instead of your usual measurement of 4-4, they let it go for an extra two measures before bringing it in again. So that's why the keyboard refrain in this has that little extra bit of room to breathe. Mm. Yeah. And just the way that it kind of expands like that and gives everything Thing a little bit more space is really, really cool, but it also gives you this sense of polyrhythmic kind of dizziness. It really kind of sets you off kilter. It sets you off kilter from the second that you start listening to this song. And I think that's one of the things I have always been fascinated by about this song, just from a creative standpoint, just the use of time signature and the way they really drive home that sense of dizziness and inertia and just being completely spaced out purely just by adding extra two beats on top of the the standard 4-4 and kind of yeah, really bringing it home with this 10-8 kind of uh, structure. Mm. Yeah, it's really a song that invites you to get lost and, and feel lost in it. Like, it doesn't ever really crescendo or anything either, which a lot of previous Radiohead had done. Yeah. So, it definitely feels like this kind of swirling thing where, like like you say, David, the time never feels quite what it should and things are constantly slippery and shifting around. Yeah. It's so beautiful. I like... I remember it being a really big moment when I first heard this, which is probably like start of uni or something, just being like, holy shit, I didn't know that like music could feel like this. Obviously then opening the door to a lot of minimalism and stuff like Terry Riley and Brian Eno and all that kind of stuff. Steve Reich. There's a really beautiful quote from Steve Reich about this. Uh, He reinterpreted the song for an album he did in 2014 called Radio Rewrite. Okay. Which is a terrific album, by the way. He says, um, the other thing that really stuck me is about the word everything, sung to 151, the tonic, the dominant, and the tonic. The tonic and the dominant are the end of every Beethoven symphony, the end of everything in classical music. That's the way it goes. In the tune, those notes actually sound kind of distant because of the harmonies. They don't sound like the tonic and the dominant. And the word everything, I'm sure Tom did it intuitively. I'm sure he wasn't thinking about it, but it's perfect. It is everything. Damn. Which is such a lovely quote. (laughs) Holy shit. (laughs) Steve Reich is so much smarter than I am. (laughs) I know, right? Yeah. (laughs) He's so good. I think this song really was a gateway into like a next phase of my musical taste. 
because it's really it's really funny. When I was younger, I had a guitar teacher and I was into Radiohead then. But I distinctly remember this guitar teacher saying to me, yeah, Radiohead, look, their first three albums are good, but I don't really like them after that. <laughs> they kind of got a little bit pretentious and they kind of lost the guitars. That is a scorching hot take. I'm so there for it. <laughs> I, I do know a lot of people who don't fuck with the electronic Radiohead because they are not in it for that. Yeah. So I assumed that being like a guitar guy and having this guitar teacher whom I shared a lot of musical taste with, I was like, oh, I guess later Radiohead isn't for me. And I don't actually know what it was that made me go and buy Kid A and uh, the rest of the other Radiohead releases. I know that definitely part of it was because I saw them all on special and it was this it was this weird kind of like forbidden fruit kind of thing for me almost. But the first album that I put on was Kid A and this is the first track I heard and it was an absolute revelation and I've got no doubt that that really laid a foundation and paved the way for my tolerance, taste and appreciation for all kinds of electronic music to follow and probably all kinds of music of, of a load of different genres. This was probably the song that took my hand and led me from exclusively guitar music to literally everything else. I distinctly remember the first time that I heard this and it, it is a mind-opening kind of experience. I had, a, I had a bit of revelation about Radiohead preparing for this song. Radiohead are really good at articulating the feelings and states of being overwhelmed. Yeah. And it can be any kind of overwhelm. Sadness, longing. I think there's a lot of really strong, overwhelming longing in Moonshaped Pool uh, or in, in Rainbows. But even I think like they can do overwhelming apathy really well. It can be a subtle state, but they articulate it so clearly. And I think always they're in these states of being like a lot less than what your feelings are. Your feelings are kind of like way bigger than you. And in this case, it's like anxiety. And I think there are a couple of tensions in this song that I really love. One of them is between this idea of calm, but this idea of menace, it's simultaneously both. Like you can be relaxed by this song at the same time as being deeply unnerved. And the other thing which I think is a thread that begins on this song and continues throughout all of Kid A and has become one of the more evergreen threads for that album, and I believe something that's really kept it relevant, is this tension between the human and the digital. Mm. I think what this song does is it kind of equates a brain overwhelmed with anxiety to a malfunctioning machine. Yeah. And that's why you have the delivery of Tom almost trying to emulate a computer that's stuck or that's glitching. And at the same time as you have his own voice distorted digitally, um, hearing that he was writing this song based on an experience of being completely anxious and overwhelmed backstage makes total sense to me. I didn't know it until recently, but hearing that I go like- <laughs> That checks the fuck out. That's absolutely it. Like the, the operating system is breaking down. Yeah. And as I said, like I think the idea of us encountering technology in a very different way to what they do it uh, in in OK Computer, but I think that's very much a part of Kid A, which leads into what you were saying, Andrew, about it being a thesis statement. You can dig and dig and dig, and the well will never become dry when it comes to meaning for uh, things inside Kid A. You will never empty that well. Yeah. Uh, do you guys know the uh, the thirty three and a third books? Mm. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I I used to have a couple of those. Yeah. Yeah, I've got a few somewhere. There are these little books that I'm a music journalist or a writer will write one 
book, like a small book, only like kind of like 90 to 120 pages or whatever on a, a record. Marvin Lynn did a great one on Kid A that I really recommend. I don't agree with this, but I think it's worth fucking funny to bring up. Um, when we said about how for, I guess, Adam, like you mentioned, this opened a gateway to different music for you. And Nathan, you and I both know that we had that same experience. And as Tom has said himself, it was very influenced by the Warp record label, in particular Aphex Twin. And when they, in an interview uh, many years ago now, they asked... Richard D. James, aka Aphex Twin, what he thought of his influence on a band like Radiohead. And they asked him, did you listen to any of their last two albums, like Kid A or Amnesiac? And Aphex says, um, I don't like them. I've heard maybe five or six tracks and I thought they sounded really cheesy. Um, <laughs> and the journalist says, cheesy. And then uh, Aphex says, um, yeah, really obvious and cheesy. I mean, I'm just comparing it to my own favorite music and I think it's terrible compared to that. <laughs> compared to all the shit, boring R&B tracks, it's probably okay. Compared to those teen punk bands or whatever they're supposed to be called, they think they're really anarchic and stuff like that. They're probably amazing. If you're only exposed to that kind of stuff, then Radiohead come along, you'll probably think they are geniuses. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I, I, feel, I feel fucking bodied. I just got bodied by Aphex. <laughs> Bitch came to fucking shoot. And just saying, like, compared to the stuff I love, I don't like it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but apparently that they were better. Later on, Aphex actually collaborated with uh, Johnny Greenwood at like a European Culture Congress and an interviewer asked Aphex Twin if his hate has like, withered or something like that. And um, Aphex says, I'm actually recently did contact Tom York through the internet and I told him, don't believe everything you read in the newspapers. The interviewer says, so did you bury the hatchet? And then Aphex says, my opinion towards my demotivation with Radiohead was exaggerated. <laughs> <laughs> He's so autistic. I love it. At the same time, I can also entirely see where Aphex Twin is coming from. Of course. Because he's dealing with just like experimental music. He's got no interest in making experimental ideas palatable like Radiohead did. Mm. But it is definitely a place for that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I could have possibly gone from the bends to fucking the Richard D. James album. (laughs) That's a big step. But give me several years of listening to Kid A and things that Kid A made more tolerable for me. I think the Richard D. James album is really good. So yeah. <laughs> suck on that, Aphex Twin, Mr. Twin, Twin Daddy. <laughs> yeah, again, Kid A is absolutely my favorite Radiohead record. And this is one of my favorite tracks from that record. Uh, it's just so fucking beautiful. I love its soft sadness that it carries throughout itself. But I love that it, it's broad synth experimental the the time signature like you mentioned david it, this is a, a spectacularly wonderful song to me i just love it so much and it's still like it's kind of like a cliched thing to say but if it was released tomorrow it would be just as insane and groundbreaking and wonderful and relevant yeah totally it's really interesting like um they actually another funny quote um uh, so from tom himself they asked him like in like the mid 2000s they said um oh like 10 years ago you wrote okay computer and now a lot of bands are trying to sound like okay computer and then he just says yeah good luck with kid a <laughs> so so true damn son yeah yeah ah. <laughs> which is fucking oh. fair man like this I'm sure this influenced a lot of people but like no, no one else did it as well and certainly no one else got as big doing what is essentially like abstract electronic music with vocals yeah terrific fucking tune Everyone, out of the sub and into the skate park at number 41, this is Millencolin with Penguins and Polar Bears.
Colin coming in at number 41 in the 2000 Hottest 100. That is the song Penguins and Polar Bears, a.k.a. The Big Two. <laughs> Nathan, you're a, you're a skate punk. Uh-huh. Like academically. Yeah. And, <laughs> and you, ha- you have blonde hair and blue eyes like a lot of people in Sweden. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Also, you were in Sweden for our series finale a few seasons ago. That's true. That's true. I've been to the great land. Home of Millencolin, it says when you fly in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Millencolin and refused. It's just like got that on the <laughs> out the front when you land. Um, so cards on the table. Uh, yeah, there's actually a way, way, way deeper connection with this song that Nathan's going to talk about now. Oh, boy. Oh, here we go. I don't think there will be many songs that are like a stronger nostalgia trigger for me that we will talk about. You can speak for me here as well, Nathan, of course. Yeah, so this in year nine, ten, I don't know. Yeah, nine. Andrew and I and some other friends uh, who had, you know, recently got into punk music through Friends or Rom decided to make a band. This was the first song we tried to play. Yes. Fuck yes. yes. This was the very first song we ever rehearsed and jammed on ever. Oh, that's such good shit. Yeah. Yeah, I think tried to play. Uh, the word tried is going to do a lot of lifting in that sense because yeah. <laughs> we were quite bad. But this is like, this is a core song of growing up or whatever. Even, even to this day, like Pennybridge Pioneers, the album this is from is one of my like comfort albums. If I'm feeling shitty or or good or, you know, any anything really, I will throw this on and and have a good time and have a lot of feelings as well. So, yeah, it's very hard to separate this. But Swedish punk band, Mill and Colin, this is their third album. It's very much them moving away from a more ska punk feel. And this album is also the first album they recorded outside of Sweden. They recorded this in California with Brett Gurewitz from Bad Religion. So I think that kind of gives you a bit of a trajectory of where the band is. Was this an epitaph release, Nathan? Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. But, and this is just like a really great high-energy skate punk song. The chorus is huge. The guitar riffs are like fast and fun and melodic. The drumming is so good as well. Like I will never get tired of the drums in the last chorus where it kind of goes to that double time. Yeah. Woof. Oh, man, so Woof. good. So good. Before we actually started rehearsing this Nathan I was never a big Millen guy that was one of the punk bands that I didn't happen to look over I was like oh yeah this was the song everybody else agreed to do sure whatever and I didn't even love the song that much and now I hear it and I'm like just washed over with this like happy nostalgia it's so intense man yeah Fucking that like God damn it, man. There's no way I could analyze this song critically. I didn't write any notes for it. Like, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I think my notes are about how um, as much as I love it, it also just makes me reflect on lost youth and like Dude, I, I, missed uh, opportunities and uh, like God damn it. friendships and relationships <laughs> that have fallen to the wayside. And it's like, it's fucked up. I get emotional listening Dude, to this. Like, I, I get super emotional listening to it. You know what? I think I feel more listening to this than I do listening to everything in its right place. And I feel a lot <laughs> during everything in its right place. Damn. Yeah. Oh, boy. It's a lot. Listening to this song feels like looking at a time before mistakes were made. I know. <laughs> or before things were locked in. And it was just like, man. Yeah. Fuck. I used to have options. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, hey, well, no one has any anymore. So, hey. That's true. 
That's true. Jesus Christ. Because the song is fucking high energy, super fun. Nathan, you're spot on with the drumming. The si- whoever the singer is, is doing a terrific job with a lot of those, that high energy, like, I know that he is Swedish, but like that kind of Californian West Coast punk. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like uplifting. Like the, even when he sings the bits that are done in kind of not a minor key, but like a lower register. Like, like the bridge part. He still kicks it up. Like yeah, everything yeah. ends on this really uplifting kind of thing. And like obviously the chorus is the crux of that. One of the things that I've talked about before that I always love about Swedish people singing in English is the fact that they've all learned how to sing or kind of phonetically, like which is why uh, Swedish people always have those harder sort of pronunciations because that's how they're learning ultimately how to sing, which is why it's just like, you don't want me to know. So they sound like Adam Sandler. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, no. You, you really got to turn it up if you want to do Adam Sandler. Did the penguin or polar bear tell you to do that? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I see what's going on here. <laughs> oh, God. Um, yeah, this isn't as big a nostalgia trigger for me personally, but uh, I have a lot of love and a lot of respect for Mill and Colin. I've seen them, I think, four times, uh, the most recent of which was last year at the Roundhouse with friend of the show, Mr. Elliot J. O'Neill from The Simpsons Index. We had ourselves a good old time at the punk rock show. It was good shit. Yeah, they're just a really energetic and really fun and really consistent band. They just really marry those ideas of pop punk so, so well in that they have that energy and the crunch in the guitar tone, but at the same time, they have that sense of melody and vocal harmony and all that sort of stuff. And you can belt out any of their choruses with the utmost of ease. Even if you've heard the song like twice, by the third time that you're hearing it, you are busting out index fingers like they're going out of fashion. Like it's just some wild, wild shit. I love this era of, yeah, like skate punk and bands emerging in this new wave of obviously American inspired, but yeah, internationally flavored uh, pop punk. There was plenty going on in Sweden and there's plenty going on here in Australia as well. So yeah, it's a, it's a very uh, fruitful time for this sort of music. I find skate punk so damn fascinating because I was always adjacent to it in high school, but never really there. Like I was really excited to hear a Mill and Colin song because I know a lot of fans of Mill and Colin, but I'd never heard them before. This is my first time hearing this song. I know that might be wild for certain people who I love it. Uh, <laughs> had spoken already. I'd say all three of us. I could say that honestly at 13. <laughs> <laughs> but like most other musical subgenres are linked to maybe an ideology or a fashion. Skate punk is literally like, skating (laughs) one specific activity or sport that people engage in and the music that either is done alongside of that or vaguely related to that or just made by people who happen to skate like people who happen (laughs) to wear dickies (laughs) yeah like all the other cultural things are kind of like they flow on from the fact that there is skating going on i just don't know of many other genres maybe i'm like forgetting some other big ones that for which that's true. Mm. You, you don't know hockey metal? <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking that up. Or curling jazz? <laughs> <laughs> but what I love about when I was reading about Mill and Colin is that these guys literally were just musicians who fucking love skating. Mill and Colin is derived from a skateboard trick, the melancholy. 
Yeah. They actually have their own skateboard contest that they've opened in Sweden called the Millencolin Open because, like, they wanted to put more skateboard culture inside their hometown, which is where they all met and where they all skated. And they wanted to kind of to give back to that. That rules. Right? They're just... They're a bunch of skaters. Yeah. They're Swedish skaters. But at the same time, like, 100%, everything that has been said about the melodic knack in this song, you can't overstate it. Like, it's so, so good. I'm also a stupid fan for, like, the particular kind of accent that Scando bands have when they do rock. The hives, just this particular quality that comes across in the vocals. And it's just so there, and it's so delightful, and it really makes those melodies pop even more. Solid songwriting and the energy is high, and I'm I'm sad I never learned to skate. It's way too late now. Way too late. (laughs) Yeah, it's too late for a lot of things, Adam. (laughs) A lot of doors closed without us even realizing. Too late to be a punk musician that is your job and you get to like just tour and hang with your friends and the band all live in the same house. (laughs) (laughs) Everything. (laughs) God, no. I will cry in my house. Everything. Do you cry when you play Tony Hawk Pro Skater 2? Like a little? Only if I keep fucking up. So, yes. A <laughs> bit of a peek behind the curtains here, but when I um, have too much to drink and I play Tony Hawk's on the computer, yes, Adam, I do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We can leave it there. <laughs> Daddy, we are not fine. Champ is when I was 15. Chump is when I'm 31. <laughs> That brings us to the end of another episode, yet another episode of Hottest 100s and Thousands. Thank you for listening. I know you're super busy right now, so the fact you've taken time for us means a lot. (laughs) But truly, fam, thank you for sticking through us. We know we missed a little bit and stuff. Um, Obviously, this whole fucking isolation and the crisis is fucking panicky and weird and shit we hope that this is a little bit of fun to distract you and those of you who have jumped on the discord server thanks we're having a lot of fun we have regular tuesday night jam sessions some voice chat talk about games talk about doing music brackets if you're not already on it there's links to it on our twitter and on our facebook and our instagram uh you can just hop on there we're shooting the shit with some other music nerds it's great fun and we love you all very much before we get out of here we're going to pick our favorites and our least favorites and continue that ever continuing story of carry over champ and carry over chump andrew david go my favorite and new champ is everything in its right place it, it is sad to bid farewell to Fiona Apple as fast as you can because that song is undeniably fucking terrific. But everything in its right place is so, so, so perfect for me. My least favorite, none of these are terrible. My least favorite is Maloko just because it didn't really do that much for me. But I still think it's a well done song. Um, my chump, however, easily remains Black Jesus. <laughs> Black Jesus? Uh, I'm also going to give uh, everything in its right place my new champ. I think that is a... Super awesome song. It's still probably my favorite Radiohead song. We could have done the whole episode on that song. Like we could have just kept going and going. There's still oh yeah, still so much we haven't even touched on with that. Least favorite. 
I don't know, because, like, all of these songs are still pretty good in some way, shape, or form, but I guess the one I have the least amount of relationship with and the one I unfortunately have to throw up on the chopping block is Sunset by Fatboy Slim. Uh, but I am not going to make it my chump because I'm not a monster. Yes. I'm the same, I think. Uh, my champ will be uh, everything in the right place. I'm not going to choose Millencolin because I want to stay in control of my emotions, and if I have to... Uh, mention it every week, then <laughs> it'll be a bad time. My least favorite, uh, like we said, they're all pretty good, is Fatboy Slim, but obviously nowhere near as bad as MXPX Responsibility. <laughs> I forgot you that was your champ. That. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, good. My new champ is everything in its right place as well. Uh, my least favorite was Daddy, I'm Fine. Because <laughs> you're not. Yeah. Aw, Daddy. <laughs> Thank you again so, so much for listening. Uh, As mentioned, you can catch us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Discord at Hottest100s. We would absolutely love to hear from you. But until next time, on behalf of Mr. Andrew McDonald. Good night. Mr. Adam Boncher. See ya. And Mr. Nathan Harrison. Bye. My name is David James Young. Everything is good for you.